Welcome to the Every Nation Rosebank Church Podcast. At our church, we honor God, make disciples, and transform nations. For more information about our church, visit everynationrosebank.org. And don't forget to subscribe. Amen. Hallelujah. Bring you greetings from Pastor Simon and Lindy, who are taking a well-deserved break. And uh, we trust that they're not even with us in spirit, right? They need to be refreshing their spirits wherever they are. <laughs> but we're still in great hands like our Pastor Lareko. I love Pastor Lareko. Right? Don't you love Pastor Lareko? You've always got to listen very carefully when Pastor Lareko shares. Did you hear what he said? Our kids' ministry is on another level. Did you get that? Okay, some of you didn't get that. Come see me afterwards. I'll explain it to you. <laughs> they literally, yeah, okay. All right. But it is such a great pleasure and a privilege to be with you. And isn't it awesome? I mean, I love online. I mean, I love the tool that we've got to be able to reach people that can't be here. But there's something about corporate worship together, isn't there? Oh, thank you, Jesus. I, I, I've just missed that so much. And we just pray that we're going to still be able to continue to do both in person and online so that we can meet and minister to as many people as possible. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. It's 1780, and a young, hedonistic, read party animal, Cambridge student, who quite frankly is a little bored with life, and has absolutely no interest in pursuing the family business, so decides to run for politics. And he's elected as a member of parliament, the British parliament. It's all a bit of a joke, but this all changes quite remarkably four years later when his life is radically and irreversibly, irreversibly transformed by the power of the gospel. Inspired, he realizes that he has one life to live, and he wants to make this life count for the kingdom. Is it seminary school? Is it as a missionary to Africa? Is it ministry to the poor and destitute right here in his own, own home nation? But God says, no, you're staying in politics. Politics. And so as an MP, he starts campaigning for social reform. But it's only three years later, in 1787, that the true cause for which he was born is brought to his attention. It's the abolition of slavery in the United Kingdom. It would take a further 20 long years, 20 long years of lobbying, 20 long years of juggling, 20 long years of educating, and 20 long years of outmaneuvering those who would oppose this bill. And there were many. But on the 25th of March, 1807, William Wilberforce would enter a motion in Parliament that would see the slave trade abolished in the United Kingdom. Friends, this is one of countless examples of men and women throughout history who responded to God's call in their lives to build His kingdom. Now, if you've been tracking with us at Every Nation Rosebank or any one of our Every Nation churches across the country, you will know that we speak frequently about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. 
But yet it still remains one of the areas of the greatest confusion in the body of Christ. And so we've decided to have a series over the next four weeks entitled Kingdom Come. And I have the privilege of kicking it off this morning with Kingdom Vision. And we're going to look at two specific questions today to kick off our series. And the first one is this. What exactly is the kingdom of God? And the second one is, how do we partner with God to build that kingdom? And so if you're ready, hold on, because we're going to get through a lot this morning. So where did this whole concept of the kingdom of God start from? And friends, you'll be glad to know that it started right at the beginning. The kingdom of God is not some afterthought. The kingdom of God is not some thought of, okay, things messed up the first time. How do we fix it? God had the idea of the kingdom in mind right from the beginning. We know that he created the universe. We know that soon after that, we don't know how soon, but soon after that, Satan rebelled. And him and two-thirds of the heavenly hosts were cast out of heaven down to earth. We know that. But God still said, even this planet, even this place, I'm going to bring back and establish my kingdom in it. I'm not leaving this to the devil. We are retaking this even this planet, for my kingdom. And so what did he do? His master plan was this. All of creation, the pinnacle of his creation, we see in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. And so God created mankind in his own image. Male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea. Rule over the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Friends, this passage of Scripture is what many theologians call the cultural mandate. It was where God was setting in place His plan to establish His kingdom on this planet. And so what God did was, although the planet was kind of taken over by Satan and his cohorts, God did something which in war is called establishing a beachhead. You know what a beachhead is? When, the, when the, uh, the allied forces were going to take back France and, and Europe, what they did was they landed on the beaches. And when they landed on the beaches, they established a beachhead. And from that point, they were able to launch their forces into Europe. And so God does this. God establishes a beachhead in Eden. Now, I'm not sure if that's exactly where Eden was, all right? But just, just go with me right now. So, so God establishes a beachhead. Is that where it is? Okay, right. Okay, I don't know what is that, Morocco, okay. But further south, uh, Pastor Loreco is saying, okay. Different level, south, okay. So, so God establishes a beachhead. And what does he do? He creates a perfect microcosm of his kingdom in Eden. How do we know? Because we know that that place was perfect. We know that the garden just brought forth its abundance. We know that the fruits of all kinds of trees grew there, and that was able to sustain mankind and all of the other creatures. We know that in that garden, God walked with Adam and Eve. He communed with Adam and Eve. He imparted to them. He educated them. Everything they needed, they could just ask him, and he would give it to them, and he would reveal it to them. And God's presence dwelt in that place. And this was God's plan. God's plan was, although the rest of the earth is still wild, although the rest of the earth is still untamed, I want to take my presence through you as my vehicles. Through you, I want to take my presence and extend it to the ends of the earth. And so God's plan was this. He was saying, go out from this place. Partner with me and take my presence 
to the ends of the world. You see, friends, God's plan from the beginning was to establish his kingdom across the entire planet. God's plan right from the beginning was, I will bring all of this back under my authority. How? By creating those in my very own image and empowering them and commissioning them to take my presence to the end of the earth. And if you think about it, as we would have moved out, as Adam and Eve and their descendants moved out from the Garden of Eden, taking God's presence, as the various sectors of society are formed, the sectors of education and commerce and civil government and media and arts and entertainment and sport and family, as all of these were forming, because we know they didn't all exist when it was just Adam and Eve, right? But we know that as they went out and as society grew, they would all automatically be under God's authorship, under God's presence, under God's anointing, under God's kingdom, because we would have taken that kingdom and that presence with us. And so that was God's plan, right from the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. But we all know that the enemy had a different plan. And the enemy's plan was, I am going to get in the way of God's plan, and I'm going to create an opportunity for mankind to choose against God. And so he comes in and he tricks Adam and Eve, and he kind of offers them an alternative, and they commit high treason and they sell out. What happens? Their relationship with God is severed. Not just their relationship, but the relationship of all of those that come from their offspring is severed with God. And as a result, this sin nature takes root in our lives. And so as mankind still goes out subduing the earth, they no longer do it with the presence of God. They no longer take God's presence to the end of the world. They are simply reinforcing the enemy's control on the planet. And so as these sectors in society form, as commerce forms, as media, civil government, education, family, arts, entertainment, and sports, as all of these sectors form, they don't establish God's kingdom and God's presence. They reinforce the enemy. They reinforce what the enemy has been trying to do all along. And we know this, friends, because in Genesis, God tells us. We know how the family transformed. Because how did it change? Childbirth became painful and dangerous. We know that this equal partnership male and female, within a marriage union, we know all of a sudden that time it turned upside down and now there became a fight for control and domination between the sexes. We know that commerce changed because no longer did the earth just bring forth its bountiful abundance and just all we needed to do was walk along and pick. All of a sudden, it was from the sweat of man's brow. It was through toil and turmoil and working the earth that we heard have productivity. Education changed because no longer was there a walking with God in the cool of the garden each evening, interacting, learning, asking questions. Now, education had to be hard fought. We had to kind of dig and discover and figure out how these things worked. And of course, we know civil government changed because it wasn't very long after the fall that the first recorded murder takes place. And we know that it just gets worse from there so bad that a few hundred years later, God looks down and he says, this is so bad, I'm going to wipe out all of creation, all of mankind, and I'm going to start again with Noah and his family. So friends, we know that this went really bad and went from bad to worse. 
And so instead of taking ground for the king, mankind simply reinforced enemy rule. But friends, here's the good news. The good news that, is what the, that it was God's plan all along, even after the fall, at that very moment, it was God's plan to restore his kingdom. God didn't get caught by surprise, go, oh my gosh, what are we going to do now? God said, okay, I foresaw this, here's how we're going to take this. And we see, friends, this God's plan for his kingdom reflects right through the Old Testament. We see it right at the beginning in the garden. What happens? God takes Adam and Eve's leaves, fig leaves, and he brings them skins of animals so that they can clothe themselves more effectively. God's plan for redemption, God's plan to reestablish his kingdom was there right from the beginning. And it ripples right through the Old Testament. One of my favorite examples of this is in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 2. Don't have time to go through it all today. So you're going to take these scriptures and you're going to go and look at them in your own time. But Nebuchadnezzar, he's the king of Babylon. He has this dream. And in this dream, he sees this enormous statue. The Word of God says it is awesome and magnificent. People that look at this are just going, oh, wow. Can there be anything greater, anything more awesome than what I'm seeing here? And this statue has a head of gold. This statue has a chest and arms of silver. It has a belly and thighs of bronze. It has legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. And then he has this dream, and in this dream, it says there's this rock. Oh, this rock. <laughs> Not cut by human hands. Supernatural. And this rock smashes the statue in its feet. And the whole statue gets demolished. So much so that there is not a single part of it that remains and is recognizable because it all gets ground down into fine particles and the winds distributed to the ends of the earth. And this rock, this rock becomes a mighty mountain that fills the entire earth. And so Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar his dream and then he interprets the dream for him and he says, Nebuchadnezzar, this statue represents the secular kingdoms that establish themselves in opposition to the kingdom of God. That head is you. It's Babylon. And we know when we just look at history that the chest and the arms, silver represented the Medes and the Persians that followed on. Babylonian kingdom lasted about 70 years. The Medes and the Persians lasted a bit longer. They were there for around about 200 years. They were then followed by the Greeks, led originally by Alexander the Great, and they hung around for about 270-odd years. And then they were followed by the Romans, both the legs and the feet, and they kind of you know, dominated. They kind of ruled the show for about 500 years. And then this rock, which represents the kingdom of God, strikes these secular kingdoms, obliterates them completely, and fills the entire earth. Friends, God was reminding his people right through the Old Testament, that his kingdom expansion plan was alive, it was well, and it was on track. But guys, this is also why so many people miss Jesus when he arrived. Because they assumed that this kingdom of God, this rock which would become a mighty mountain, would take force the same way each of the other secular kingdoms did. They were expecting Jesus, or not Jesus, the Messiah, to rock up, take something by force, and establish political power. And that's why they had no clue that when they saw the Messiah, that he actually was the Messiah. They had no idea that he would come in a completely different spirit from those that, that the previous secular kingdoms had come. 
Because Jesus, friends, as we know, operated according to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. His kingdom is not one of flesh and blood, but of spiritual power and authority. So now let's stay from Daniel and fast forward 500 years. And we find ourselves in 2030 AD. And Jesus is on the planet. And he's walking. And he has raised up a band of 12 disciples. And what we see here, friends, is we see how Jesus is now establishing the next important part of the rollout of God's kingdom. How are we going to start taking the territory back from the enemy? And friends, what we're going to look at now is we're going to look at two important aspects. We're going to look at the vehicle God chose to use. It's this thing called the ecclesia. It's what the, the English translations in the Bible you know, translate as church. And we'll look at the culture of this new kingdom. In other words, how this ecclesia operated. What spirit did it operate in? What was its culture? Now, friends, it's fascinating if we start with a vehicle. We start with this ecclesia. When Jesus was preparing his disciples for the relaunch of the kingdom, he put a very, very radical proposition in place. He did this in a way that nobody expected that he did, that he would. And so we're going to read together Matthew chapter 16. Now, apologies if that's a bit small, if you're sitting near the back, but I'm going to give you time to open your iPad or your iPhone or your Bible and to get there if you'd like to follow with me directly. And whilst you're doing that, let me give you a bit of context to this passage. Jesus is using this as a teaching moment for his disciples. He's about to introduce the concept of the ecclesia, of the church. He chooses to do it in a place called Caesarea Philippi. Now, I've been to Caesarea Philippi. It's a real place, okay? Now, in the time of Jesus, this was a place steeped in occultic and satanic worship. This was a kind of a, this was one of the headquarters. This was a place that was steeped in kind of demonic spiritual activity. There was not one, but there were two or three places that were centers of demonic worship. And the gates of Hades, the gates of hell was one of these places. Managed to go there in 2010 with Pastor Roger, Pastor Nicola and their boys. And we were there and we saw this place. And so Jesus chooses right here at the gates of Hades to impart some spiritual truth to his disciples. And this is what he says. He says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Friends, I just see in my spiritual eye, I just see a picture of heaven, all of the angels in heaven <gasps> holding their breath. Have they got it? After two, two and a half years being with Jesus, have they got it? And Simon Peter answers and says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Can you see the angels? Oh, yes, thank you. Jesus replied, he said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, on this truth, on this revelation, I will build my church. I will build my ecclesia. And the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not overcome it. 
And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Now, friends, let's unpack this together. I've already spoken about the place. And Jesus is not kind of like out of his depth. You know, he doesn't choose a nice, quiet you know, synagogue to kind of, he goes right into the heart of enemy territory. And then he says this. He says, based on the fact of this truth, that Jesus is the Messiah, we are now going to take this truth to the ends of the world, and this is how we're going to do it, guys. What we're going to do is we're going to use a structure called the ecclesia. Now, it's fascinating, friends. Have you noticed that the gospel doesn't talk much about the church? It doesn't talk much about the ecclesia. It doesn't explain what an ecclesia is. Why not? Because everybody knew exactly what an ecclesia was. There were three key structures that existed, governmental structures. One was the synagogue, one was the temple, and one was this ecclesia. And what was an ecclesia? It was a Greek term. It was initially a Greek idea, but the Romans were now in charge, as we know from that kind of that slide of the, of the, of the, um, the statue. The Romans were in charge, and the way an ecclesia worked was simply this. Whenever there were as, was an assembly of Romans together, and it could be as few as two or three of them. So it could be many, but it could be as few as two or three. Whenever there were at least two Romans in one place, they would form what's called an ecclesia. And this is how an ecclesia worked. Even though separated geographically from Rome, when they were together, when they agreed on anything, they would invoke the power and authority of Rome in that gathering. And that's why Romans had so much control and authority over all the other plebs. Because Romans had the status where, hey, if two of us agree on anything, you carry my bag, dude. And I can make you take me a mile this way. That's why, friends, when you read Acts 16 and Acts 21, Paul and Silas in prison, Paul brought before a centurion. They don't realize he's a Roman citizen. They whip him, they beat him, they throw him in prison. And then Paul reveals, by the way, guys, I'm a Roman citizen. They freak out. Why do they freak out? Because they realize, hold on, if Paul is a Roman and I'm a Roman, we had formed an ecclesia. And if we're an ecclesia, I don't get to treat Paul the way I just treated him. I've broken all sorts of rules and protocols. I'm in deep trouble. And that's why you read it in Acts 16 and Acts 21, 22. They beseech him. They say, Paul, dude, we're so sorry, man. Please, can, you just, can we just forget this happened? Could, could you just please leave us and, and you know, are we good? And they're hoping Paul leaves them because they are in such trouble now because they've breached Roman protocols of an ecclesia. And so, friends, when Jesus says to them, I am going to form an ecclesia, they knew exactly what that meant. And he chose to use a secular structure, not one of the religious structures. Why? Friends, it is brilliant. Because the way that the gospel spread so rapidly was because instead of calling people to a central place, saying, come here so we can tell you this new message, they just took the message everywhere. And this ecclesia found itself all over us, permeating every single sector of society. Why? Because in Acts chapter 2, we read that they're kind of gathering together and they're having meals, right? In Acts chapter 6, we're reading about how they're forming part of these social reform structures and they're feeding widows. 
Other parts of Acts, you see people bringing the sick onto the pavement so that as the apostles just walk by, if their shadow just falls on them, people will get healed. It's not a surprise that the church grew so rapidly because instead of the church saying, come to us, we've got a message, the church got into community, got into society and said, we're going to permeate this with the love of Jesus. And friends, that brings us to the second part of why they were so effective because it's two parts of the same coin. The one part is the structure, the ecclesia, where there's at least two or three of you. And when you're two or three of you, wherever you are, whatever you bind will be bound and whatever you loose will be loosed. But the second part of this was the message of that ecclesia. And that's why Jesus, there's about two or three references in the gospel to Jesus speaking about the church, the ecclesia. But there's over a hundred references in the gospel where he speaks about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because he did not need to explain the structure, but he did need to explain the message, the purpose, the way that this new ecclesia was going to operate, how it was going to be so different to every other ecclesia, secular one that existed before, that rules by power and, 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 and dominates society. This one was going to be different. So what is this message of this new ecclesia? And friends, we're going to look at the many but we're going to look at two in particular. I love the message. I love the message this morning. Did you see my notes? No, no, just kidding. I love the message. How are we going to build eternal wealth? How are we going to serve, love, impact every area of society by building eternal wealth? So what's this other side of the coin? What is this message? Because friends, what God wants to do is he wants to take his ecclesia and instead of us calling somebody centrally to the middle, the ecclesia is going to grow and impact every single sector of society. Amen? Yeah. And that's what God's doing. And that's what God does when two or three of you are together on a Zoom call. There's an ecclesia in operation. When two or three of you are together in a coffee shop, there's an ecclesia in operation. When two or three of you are together dealing with a crisis, there's an ecclesia in operation. Amen? Which means that whatever you bind is bound. And whatever you loose is loose. So, what is this message? And the first part of this message, friends, we find in Matthew chapter 22. One of my favorite scriptures of all. Because somebody says, so what is the greatest commandment? He says, let me tell you what the greatest commandment is. Because it sums up all of the others. It's simply this. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Friends, I'm increasingly trying to use this as the filter through which I process all decisions and all actions. I, I still believe that if we have this as our primary filter, we're going to get it right. We're going to be establishing God's kingdom with whatever we do. Now, I wish I could tell you, stand here and say, I've mastered this. But unfortunately, I haven't. If you don't believe me, just ask my family. I'm going to tell you one way that I haven't. A few weeks ago, I booked a holiday for our family. One of the first times we've been able to get away since the beginning of lockdown. And we were so excited. We found this deal. I booked it. I paid for it. And within 24 hours of having booked and paid for it, the host contacted me and said, uh, I need to charge you more. I'm going like, I'm I'm, you've got to be kidding me. What do you mean you've got to charge me more? 
Now, in the middle of this negotiation and this discussion, and, I, and let me be very clear, I wasn't nasty and I wasn't rude. That's not what I'm repenting of here, right? In the middle of this discussion, this negotiation, she just terminates the discussion and says, actually, I've rented it to someone else now, so thank you, but you don't have the holiday. Man, I was so despondent. My shock and disbelief turned to sadness, and that sadness turned to anger, and anger turned me into being a very, very unpleasant father and husband in our home for a 24-hour period. And as a result, all of this, you know, all of this kind of like when we were meant to be spending good family time together, I was not a very pleasant person to be around. Friends, I wish I'd handled it better. My family kind of, kind of highlighted this as lovingly as my wife and my kids can. And I needed it. They're kind of like, you know, come on, Dad, what's going on with you? Friends, I wish I could say in that moment, I had taken out the scripture and said, Father, how do I love you? And how do I love this host like a neighbor? Now, I don't know if the outcome would have been different, friends. Okay? I don't know if the outcome would have been different. But I know now, three weeks later, that that reaction was just way beyond what it could, should have been. You know what I'm saying? To let something outside of my control impact me in such a way that it creates a horrible environment for my entire family for a 12 to 24-hour period. I said, Father, help me here. If I had just said in that moment, Father, how do, I, how do I love you in this situation? How do I love her in this situation? How do I not allow this to steal my joy? How do I not allow this to impact my family? Now, I don't know if the outcome would have been any different, friends. And since then, we found a better place, and we're still going to go on holiday, and God has just provided, right? But friends, I realized that if I had just taken that filter and said, Father, allow me to process it in line with Matthew, I know I would have done better. And so I'm telling you so you can hold me accountable, so you can ask me when you see me, hey, Dorian, how's that filter going in your life? Okay. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, thank you. And Pastor Loreco says you can hold him accountable too. <laughs> Secondly, friends, and there's many, but secondly, this is the one that I believe God wants to talk to us about today. Romans 14, verse 17. Ah, oh, sorry, that says 17, verse 14. Okay. Charles, please fix that for the next one. Romans 14, verse 17 tells us that the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. What is righteousness? Righteousness is the result of making something right. A more commonly used term today is justice. When you do something that is right, when you fix something, when you intervene on someone's behalf. Friends, it's fascinating, but also rather obvious when we think about it. When you look at how many times Jesus led with loving them, he. Having compassion on him, he. You see, Jesus doesn't lead with sort your life out. Jesus leads with how can I love you? How can I serve you? How can I make a difference in your life? Why does he do that? Because something happens in people's lives when we intervene on their behalf and we bring justice against the, against the disorder and disharmony of the gates of Hades and confusion in their lives. Because what does it do? It opens the door for peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It opens the door for them to say, hey, why are you doing this? Hey, man, I'm drawn to you. I'm so grateful for what you've done. Help me understand. And it gives us an opportunity to introduce people to the author 
of the righteousness. It gives us an opportunity to introduce people to what's going to make a long-term difference in their life. Yes, God used me to intervene in this moment, but let me introduce you to the person that's going to help you to make a difference for the rest of your life and for all of eternity. You see, friends, there's something about intervening on someone else's behalf. There's something about leading with justice. There's something about serving in love that unlocks people's hearts to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I remember sitting down in a meeting uh, with a representative from a company we were doing a deal with. And they said, we don't know what it is, but somehow when we work with you guys, things just seem to go better. I said, thank you. Let me tell you what I think that is. You see, friends, when we're involved, as the ecclesia, when we're involved in people's lives, in business, in education, in arts, in media, things should go better. Right? Because we bring the Spirit of God with us, right? I love the example of Zacchaeus in the Word of God, Luke chapter 19. Again, no time to read it today. You've got some homework today. Luke chapter 19. Now, Zacchaeus was clearly a very powerful man. He was clearly a very rich man. Powerful men, rich men normally get what they want. They buy their way in if they don't get invited in. Only problem is Jesus wasn't selling tickets, okay? So he tries to get to the front, but guess what? He's not loved by the community, and so they're like, just, dude, forget it. You're not getting past me. The Bible says he's a little guy, even smaller than I am, okay? So he's a little guy. So what does he do? And I don't think rich men often did this, but he climbs up a tree, hanging onto a branch, so he can see what's happening. He can catch a glimpse of this guy that he's heard so much about, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is walking, and he spots Zacchaeus in the tree, and he walks up, and he says, Hey, Zacchaeus, come down, bro. We're going to hang out this afternoon. The community go, Are you crazy, Jesus? Do you know who this guy is? But something happens, friends. In a short few hours that Jesus spends with Zacchaeus, something happens in this man's life, right? What happens? All of a sudden, he makes this announcement. His life is transformed, and he commits to give up 50% of all his wealth for the poor. And the other 50%, he says, I'm going to put up as collateral for anything that I've stolen from anybody. Now, guys, I don't know about you, but I don't know how many wealthy men have ever made a declaration like that. Why does Zacchaeus choose to give up half of his wealth for the poor? Why does he choose to set the other half aside to make right where he had stolen? Jesus tells us why. He says, because today salvation has come to this house. You see, friends, Zacchaeus realized that the righteousness that had been showed to him unlocked this peace and this joy, and he wanted to unlock that righteousness in the lives of others. You see, Zacchaeus, if he just sat up and said, guys, I love you all and I'm sorry, it would have meant very little. But Zacchaeus said, you know what, I'm going to put my words into action. I'm going to take half of my wealth and I'm going to put it behind my words. And the other half I'm going to put it behind as well, but in a slightly different way. See, friends, that's why James chapter 2 says to us that faith without deeds is useless. Because the kingdom is of words, but the kingdom is also of action. And so, friends, God is saying to us, how can we establish righteousness in the lives of people? How can we establish righteousness in those various sectors of community? The beginning of lockdown, as the Wrigley family, we were moved, as I'm sure many of you were by, by the number of people who would ring our doorbell every week 
seeking help. And so we went off to the store. We started buying some items, you know, some maize and some tea and some, you know, some biscuits and things like that. And we put these food parcels together so that when somebody rang the doorbell, we could bless them, we could love on them, we could wish them, you know, you know just, just pour some of God's love upon them. And of course, the numbers started growing. Yeah, they probably started telling their friends, hey, that bell's a good one to ring on. Okay. So, okay, so what happened is we realized, my gosh, you know what, guys, we can't keep doing this because the bell would ring three or four times a day and it would be disruptive and sometimes I'd be on a, on a meeting. And so we said, okay, Lord, this is not working. So, so how about we do this? So we made bigger parcels and we said to everybody, guys, come along on the Tuesday at lunchtime every week. And so this shift the first Tuesday, there were 16 people. Oh, this we can handle. And I started getting to know the 16 people. And the next Tuesday, there were 25 people. And I could still kind of handle 25, you know. But then it grew to 35. And before we knew it, we had 50 people. And so I kind of said, oh, Lord Jesus, I'm not coping. So I gave Pastor Julius a call. I said, Julius, he's our pastor, senior pastor of the Bromford And I said, Julius, bro, I've got an ecclesia meeting on my pavement in Houghton, Okay. Can you help? And he said, bro, I'm there. And so Julius rocked up on that Tuesday with five of his leaders. And they said, we're here to help disciple and kind of serve. And I phoned up Pastor Tiam, right? There's that handsome Pastor Tiam. Can you guys spot him there? I phoned up Pastor Tiam. I said, Tiam, bro, you've done this in Rosebank. You've figured out how we get the homeless into the church and how we feed them, but also disciple them. Come. And so Pastor Tiam rocks up and he rocks up with 50 one-to-one booklets. And we go, hallelujah, all right? I don't know how many of you know these, but these are great discipleship tools. And we start preaching and we start teaching and we feed. And we realize, my gosh, even, you know, I can't, we can't still have 50 people on the pavements. And so we eventually move all of this across to Bromfontine. And now we have this group of people, this amazing group of people that are being discipled and that are being fed from our church in Bromfontine. Phone up Brian and, uh, and, and Nicola, and I say, guys, listen, we need some food parcels. They say, you got it. Where do we deliver? And so we just saw the kingdom of God being established in their lives. Friends, we're ready to take this up a notch. You know what the next step here is? The next step is this. Now that we're feeding them, now that we're discipling them, how do we break the cycle of poverty in their lives? And that's what we are trusting you for right now. If you're sitting here and you're saying, you know what, I can be part of this process. I can be part of, you know, uh, discipling. I can be part of coaching. I can be part of training. Whether it's help find a job or whether it's kind of help start a business, then let us know because that's the next step in the, these amazing people's lives. Why? Because God's plan is not that we just feed them, keep feeding them once a week. God's plan is not that they just get filled with good spiritual food, as important as all of that is. But God's plan is that they themselves as part of his ecclesia, move into society and start establishing his kingdom and are a blessing to others as well. Amen? And that's God's perfect plan for their lives as well. And friends, I can tell you so many more stories. I'm wrapping up right now. I can tell you about Professor Willy Cronier and his team of master students at the University of the Witwatersrand. Gripped by the plight of 600 million people in Africa with no access to electricity. You know how bleak it is when we've got two or three or four hours of load shedding, right? Can you imagine 24-7 load shedding? No access to power whatsoever. And so he starts putting his mind together, his head together, and they come up with an incredible solution. 
that can bring power to over 100 million households, 600 million people throughout Africa. I could tell you about Philip, Sahana, and Laswet, who have developed this cryptocurrency, a sound money solution that will provide Zimbabweans with an alternative means of trading and transacting, free of inflationary manipulation and control. I can tell you about some amazing people operating in the political space. Some of them you will know well, like Musi Maimani. Some of them you may not know as well, like Dr. Michael Louie or Sherilyn Dudley, who are campaigning and fighting relentlessly, relentlessly for electoral reform in South Africa right now. What does that mean? That means that members of parliament, MPs, will be directly accountable to us, their constituency, and not to the political party that chooses to dominate, control them, and insist that they vote in a certain way. Friends, there are so many of these, and time does not permit us to go through and do them all. But what we will be doing is we're going to be double-clicking on these things every Monday evening on a Zoom call following the Sunday. And uh, we're going to leave this slide up afterwards. We're going to be doing it starting tomorrow at 7.30 p.m. If you want to double-click on some of these things, if you want to share a testimony, hear more testimonies, discuss applications, you Q&A, you're kind of like, how does this work? Let's get together and let's figure out how we as the ecclesia can be effective at establishing God's kingdom in this place. Amen. So what have we done today? We've seen that God's kingdom has always been His plan. He has chosen to disperse us throughout society as His ecclesia, where two or more of us are. Sometimes there are many of us, like right now. But most times during the week, it's two or three or four or five. And that is an ecclesia operating. The difference between his ecclesia and any other one that may exist is not only who we represent, but how we represent him. Friends, I believe that God is unlocking within us the ability to serve by loving and to lead with righteousness and justice which will open the door to unlocking personal relationship with Jesus in the lives of so many people. Let's pray together. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus. Friends, as we are just in this time of reflection, I would like us just to reflect on God's challenge to each and every one of us. How will you lead with righteousness? How will you use the lens of the greatest commandment to govern your decisions and your actions? And Father, as we are praying right now, Father, I pray that every single one of us, to every single one of my friends, my brothers, my sisters right now, Lord, I pray that you'd reveal a person and a way that we can serve that person to see righteousness established in their lives. I don't know, friends, it might be a family member. It might be a colleague. It might be a decision that you're grappling with at work at a board level. Father, right now I pray, Lord, reveal how we as your ecclesia can serve and lead with love to see your kingdom established.
Jesus. Let us, like you, Father, lead with compassion. Lead with love. Jesus. Jesus. Friends, he's empowered us. And he's equipped us. And he's setting us apart. And he has sent us out as his ecclesia to carry his kingdom culture. Hallelujah, Father. As we have our heads bowed right now, there's one other group of people that I want to pray for. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, Father, I'm a little distant from you today. For whatever reason, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether it's lockdown. It doesn't matter whether it's, you know, whatever it is. But you're feeling like, God, I'm distant from you. And my relationship with you is not where it should be. If that's you today, God is looking down on you with love and compassion. He's not wagging his finger at you, but he has his arms wide open and he's saying, I'm ready if you are. So if that's you, would you just quickly just wave at me? Just raise your hand and say, that's me. I'm at that place. Thank you. I see those hands. I see that hand at the back. I see those hands. I see that hand in the front. Friend, there are about five or six people there at the back. I see you. There are about five or six people that have already waved their hands. I know there's more. There's a reason you decided to get out of bed and come here today. Because God wanted you to hear this face to face. And He wants to love you. And He wants to welcome you back into that relationship with Him. If you raised your hand, could you do us a favor? I'm not going to embarrass you at all, but I want to pray with you. And if you wouldn't mind just coming up and just standing in the front here. If you raise your hand, could you do that? Could you do that? And as they do that, if you should have raised your hand and you didn't, you come join them. All right? And can the rest of us just give God a a praise offering? Please, if you raised your hand, wherever you are, just please, please, my the back, please come on. Come on, ladies, please come on. Come on, you know where you are. That's right. Hallelujah. Congratulations, guys. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus. Just give each other a bit of space here so we can still make sure we we comply with all the protocols. Hallelujah. Spread out my brother all the way down. Hallelujah. Father, right now, I thank you for each and every one of these amazing people. I pray for my brother, Lord Jesus. Destiny all over his life. I pray for my sister. Lord Jesus, she's precious to you. She's precious to us. I thank you for my sister here, Lord Jesus destiny all over your life. You know that? God has a plan and a purpose. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus, I thank you for this amazing daughter in your kingdom. Lord, I thank you. I just see the Spirit of God all over you. Just radiating through you. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus. Lord, I thank you for these two amazing people. And so what I'd like us to do, I'd like us all just to repeat this as we make this commitment before the Lord. Could you guys all just join us in the front here as well? 
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our God. We thank you that you paid the ultimate price to save our souls. Lord, use us as instruments of righteousness. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's give the Lord a praise offering.